Hearing the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Today we are considering the nomination of Ambassador Samantha Power to be Administrator of the United States Agency for International Development, known to all of us as USAID. Ambassador Power, congratulations on your nomination. Thank you for your willingness to return to public service. It's a pleasure to welcome you back before the committee. When I chaired your 2013 hearing to be UN ambassador, I said you were, quote, impeccably qualified for the position. Your experience, drive, and dedication to the advancement of humanitarian principles also, I believe, make you impeccably qualified to be the next USAID administrator. Before I go any further, I understand that our distinguished colleague from Massachusetts, a member of the committee, uh, wants to introduce you this morning, so um, we'll turn to him first. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Uh, uh, Ranking Member Risch, it is my absolute honor and pleasure to introduce our nominee today, Ambassador Samantha Power, nominated to be the administra Administrator of the United States Agency for International Development, USAID, and more importantly, cherished Massachusetts residents. Uh, I'd also like to welcome Ambassador Power's husband, Cass, uh, and their two young children, Declan and Rian, who are uh, right behind us uh, here today. Uh, Samantha is a friend, a constituent, and of course, a fellow Irishman, Irish women in her case. As, a, uh, as noted in a New Yorker profile of her, Ambassador Power's last name, Power, comes from the Irish, de poor, meaning of the poor. Fittingly, she has dedicated her entire life in the service of others, using her razor-sharp intelligence and fierce advocacy as a journalist, activist, and diplomat to stand with the world's voiceless masses, all while simultaneously advancing United States' interests by building bonds in every corner of our world. Ambassador Power has been known to be ferocious in the pursuit of justice, human rights, and democracy, always taking the time to hear other points of view with great humility. While she disagrees with Henry Kissinger on everything from politics to the no-brainer debate of Red Sox versus Yankees, he has said that Samantha Quote, has don't, don't ruin the nominee's uh, opportunity here, Mr. <laughs> uh, Senator Mark. <laughs> he, he has said, uh, Ambassador uh, 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 Henry Kissinger has said that Samantha has an excellent analytical mind, and even on matters where I might have come to different conclusions, I respected her analysis. Perhaps the highest praise ever given by a Yankees fan to a member of Red Sox Nation. As an immigrant from Ireland, Ambassador Power's personal background gives her a unique and deep respect for this country and all it stands for. Spending time between Pittsburgh, Atlanta, Dublin, and Boston, she received her bachelor's degree at Yale University and went on to obtain her law degree at Harvard University. She served in several key positions during the Obama administration, including as the Special Assistant to the President, the National Security Council, Senior Director for Multilateral Affairs and Human Rights, and notably as the youngest ever United States Ambassador to the United Nations. Prior to entering government service, she began her career as a war correspondent, 
reporting from the siege of Sarajevo. She became a Pulitzer Prize-winning author and served as the founding executive director of the Carr Center for Human Rights here? Policy no. at Harvard University. As she takes on the important work of leading USAID, the challenges Ambassador Power will face are daunting. Recovering from the global pandemic, revamping the state of global democracy, tackling the climate crisis, and extending life-saving assistance to the nearly one billion people around the world who go to bed hungry every night. I know of no person more qualified to take on this task. She embodies that bold red, white, and blue USAID logo, which states, from the American people. In 2015, Ambassador Power invited me to be her guest to attend His Holiness Pope Francis' address before the United Nations General Assembly. For two Irish Catholics from Massachusetts, it was the experience of a lifetime. On that day, Pope Francis spoke of the need for compassion, inclusivity, and action in tackling the world's shared challenges. Ambassador Power's career personifies each of these qualities, and I know she will take her compassion, her inclusivity, and her unwavering desire for action to achieve great things for the people of the United States and the world at USAID. So welcome, Ambassador Power. We are pleased to have you here. We can't wait to see you get to work over at USAID, and I thank you for your service to our nation. It is my privilege, Mr. Chairman, to introduce uh, Ambassador Power to the committee. Thank you very much, Senator Markey. We know that you both sit here and in other committees, so if you have other work to do, we, we certainly invite you to either join us if you can. If not, we'll see you back a little later. That was a, a rousing uh, introduction, and with what, but with one flaw, uh, I thought it was uh, extraordinary. So, uh, as a Yankee fan, I just I just can't be quiet. So, uh, anyhow, uh, let me uh, start off. Um, Ambassador, in his inaugural address, President Biden said that, "quote We will lead not merely by the example of our power, but by the power of our example." The work the dedicated professionals of USAID do exemplifies that example supporting people around the world to advance democratic and citizen-responsive governance, to help ensure fair treatment and access to opportunity for vulnerable minorities, and provide life-saving relief on behalf of the American people. We know that these core values are the strength of our own country and that promoting them abroad contributes to more stability and stability worldwide. As I emphasized to Secretary Blinken at his nomination hearing, the U.S. must reassert itself as a global leader capable of confronting complex challenges. As we work to address COVID-19, inequality, migration, climate change at home, if the U.S. is not contributing leadership and resources to address these issues globally, then our security at home is tenuous at best. There are few people as familiar with many of today's complex, long-running conflicts as you are. As you well know, if confirmed, you'll be responsible for responding to new and renewed conflicts from Venezuela to Ethiopia to Burma, human and resource-driven conflicts which have victimized hundreds of thousands of civilians, forcing millions to flee their homes. Political crises in Latin America have caused unprecedented humanitarian disasters. I'm encouraged by the Biden administration's plans to renew our commitment to achieving a diplomatic solution to the Venezuela crisis where USAID 
has provided significant humanitarian and development assistance. In the Northern Triangle countries, addressing rampant crime, weak governance, corruption, and displacement must also be a top U.S. priority, as stability there directly impacts the security and prosperity of the United States. Across Africa, we have seen democratic backsliding in various countries, along with persistent terrorist threats and conflicts that have cost thousands of lives in the space, displaced hundreds of thousands more. In particular, the conflict in Ethiopia's Tigray province is contributing to destabilizing the whole horn of Africa while increased terrorism has thrown the Sahel into chaos. Meanwhile, climate change is increasing food insecurity and natural resource scarcity and threatening the very existence of many small island nations while COVID-19 pandemic continues to ravage the world. At the same time that you'll be confronting these global challenges, you will also need to rebuild and restore USAID as an institution. Successful U.S. foreign policy rests on the appropriate utilization of the three Ds, defense, diplomacy, and development. Unfortunately, a uh, previous administration had anywhere from skepticism to disdain for the last of those two. While I believe Ambassador Green, who, for whom I have great respect, believed and invested in the mission of the agency, the years after his departure have taken a serious toll on the agency morale, strained USAID's relationships with its implementing partners, and weakened trust in America. The agency needs internal attention, and I recommend that if confirmed, you listen to USAID's civil servants, foreign service officers, and foreign service nat nationals to explain what USAID needs. As you may know, USAID underwent a major reorganization spearheaded by Ambassador Green. And while I believe he approached this effort with the best of intentions, the ultimate execution was lacking. I do believe the agency must be nimble enough to respond to changing and pressing challenges. And I trust that you'll make the ongoing reorganization work better and consult with this committee on how that might be achieved. So in conclusion, if confirmed, you'll have your work cut out for you. However, I have great confidence in your experience and abilities, not to mention your passion for making this world a better place. We would expect you to engage with this committee as a partner and uh, asset in accomplishing USAID's mission. This committee has a long bipartisan history of support for USAID, and I expect you to engage in frequent and open dialogue to help sustain that support. I look forward to hearing from you today. We welcome your family, who is always part of uh, the sacrifices that those of us who are in public service make. And with that, let me turn to the distinguished ranking member, Senator Rich. Thank you, <clears throat> Senator Menendez. I appreciate that. And Ambassador Power, thank you for uh, agreeing to take this on. And thank you to your family. As the chairman noted, uh, there's always sacrifices that are shared, uh, not so sometimes not equally by the family. The role of the U.S. AID administrator is an important one. We all know that. In order to accomplish the goals of our, as a nation, we need a development agency that reflects the challenges of the 21st century and is staffed and resourced to be strategic, efficient, effective, and accountable. USAID, USAID must be led by someone who understand, uh, and understands that aid is most effective when it is targeted toward clearly defined U.S. national interests and those who are committed to advancing good governance, economic growth, and self-reliance. The challenges before us are immense. An estimated 80 million people globally have been displaced from their homes, 26 million of whom are now refugees. 
The conflict in Syria has entered its 10th year and has left more than 12 million people food insecure. Ebola has reemerged in West Africa and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And the COVID-19 pandemic has shuttered schools, destroyed livelihoods, and pushed millions of people into poverty around the world. USAID has a successful record of responding to emergencies, and we will count on the next administrator to put dollars provided for humanitarian assistance to good use. The agency has also done tremendous work in combating food insecurity, expanding access to water, and empowering women to participate in their economies. USAID needs to work on coordination with the CDC. This is why the largest U.S. global health program, PEPFAR, is coordinated by the Department of State. As we continue to combat the COVID-19 pandemic, I look forward to working with the Department, USAID, the CDC, and my colleagues here in Congress on a more comprehensive approach to global health security and diplomacy. Senator Menendez and I have been discussing that issue in particular. And uh, we have talked about uh, a path forward to where we can get a uh, bipartisan piece of legislation that will be one of the most important things we do uh, as far as uh, global health is concerned and as far as the people of the world are concerned. We must put in work uh, in the work now so we can get ahead of the next pandemic and keep, keep Americans safe from infectious disease threats before they cross our borders again. We should also maximize the impact of U.S. contributions to COVAX and Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, uh, and through the Global Fund's COVID-19 response mechanism. Beyond pandemics, I'm interested to learn more about how you, if confirmed, will position USAID to counter China's malign development model. Uh, that model is something that many of us consider to be one of the greatest threats to U.S. Na US national security. I would also like to better understand uh, your view on promoting democracy, good governance, and the rule of law, the foundations of healthy and stable societies. The United States cannot, should not, and shouldn't even consider single-handedly trying to solve the world's problems. Difficult choices must be made. But while the administrator is not empowered to make those choices independently, USAID does remain under the foreign policy direction of the Secretary of State. I'm pleased to see that the next administrator will have a seat at the principal's table on critical matters of development and humanitarian response. If confirmed, I'm eager to work with you to ensure that USAID remains strategic, focused, and accountable. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Senator Risch. With that, uh, Madam Ambassador, the floor is yours. Your full statement will be included in the record. We ask you to summarize it, and then we'll have a conversation with you. Thank you so much. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Risch, members of the committee, it's a tremendous honor to appear before you today. I'm humbled by President Biden's trust in me and by the opportunity to join such an indispensable agency at such a critical time. I'd like to begin by thanking my mother, Vera Delaney, a doctor whom I've watched care for her patients during the darkest hours of this pandemic. My father, Eddie Burke, whose curiosity about the world helped spark my own. My husband and best friend, Cass Sunstein, an American original. And my 11-year-old son, Declan, and 8-year-old daughter, Rian, whose shared love of animals and nature remind me daily of our responsibility to our planet.
Public service does ask a lot of families, and I'm indescribably grateful for the support and generosity of mine. I'd also like to thank the members of this committee. While bitter political winds blew, continued bipartisan support for the U.S. Agency for International Development has saved and improved millions of lives while enhancing U.S. security and U.S. prosperity. I was fortunate to work with many of you when I last served. If confirmed, I'll be eager to build on these relationships and forge new ones. I first saw USAID's impact in war-torn Bosnia, where I started my career in 1993 as a reporter. I saw USAID staff and partners deliver food to the vulnerable while supporting mothers as they tried to locate their missing sons and husbands. Since then, wherever I traveled, whether in East Timor just after it became the world's newest nation, Darfur in the middle of this century's first genocide, or West Africa at the height of the Ebola epidemic, USAID was there. America was there, identifying needs and moving heaven and earth to meet them. In my work, I've seen how the investments the United States makes in other countries are investments in our own security. I've seen the inextricable linkages between political freedom and broad-based economic growth. I've seen that the most effective development is driven by those on the ground with local knowledge and expertise, and I have seen the overwhelming power of individual dignity as a driver of world events. Even as China increasingly uses its financial leverage to sway other nations, citizens everywhere are insisting that they be able to exercise agency, provide for themselves, and exercise their fundamental rights. If confirmed, I will work to strengthen the institution of USAID and invest in the capabilities of the agency's dedicated 10,000 foreign service officers, civil servants, locally employed staff, contractors, and other personnel. This means seeking out and amplifying their insights, learning about specific local needs, and adapting our programs. It means addressing the issues related to diversity, equity, inclusion, and advancement within USAID's workforce. And it means emphasizing what President Biden himself, and both of you, I think, already have stressed, Development is critical to America's ability to tackle the toughest problems of our time, economic, humanitarian, and geopolitical. In consultation with you and others in Congress, I will aim to ensure that USAID enhances its longstanding leadership in food security, education, women's empowerment, and global health, while also addressing four interconnected and gargantuan challenges confronting the world at this moment. First, the COVID pandemic and the development progress that has been imperiled in everything from food security to gender equality to access to education to economic growth. Climate change and the surge in droughts, storms, food shortages, and climate-associated humanitarian emergencies. Third, with more conflicts occurring today than at any point since the end of the Cold War, conflict and state collapse. And fourth, finally, with freedom declining around the world for the 15th straight year in a row, democratic backsliding. In tackling these and other challenges, I want to assure the committee that I will work every day to expand burden sharing in the international system. At the UN, working with my administration colleagues, I was able to help secure major commitments from other countries to care for refugees, 
respond to the Ebola epidemic, strengthen peacekeeping, and adopt the Sustainable Development Goals. U.S. investments are catalysts that can be used to mobilize governments, international organizations, foundations, and businesses to help countries achieve their own development goals. If I'm confirmed to lead this great agency, I will work tirelessly with members on both sides of the aisle to ensure that taxpayer dollars are well spent. Guided by evidence, I will work with you to adapt or replace programs that are not delivering. I will be transparent and accessible as together we chart a course that meets the needs of the current moment. In 1979, as Senator Markey alluded to, my mother brought my younger brother and me to America from Ireland, blessing me with a life full of opportunity. As one who has been given so much by the United States, I would take it as an incomparable privilege to lead the world's premier development agency in order to expand the opportunities available to others. I thank you, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you. Ambassador Power, we'll start a five-minute rounds of uh, an order of those who have appeared either in person or virtually, uh, and uh, I'll start with the chair. The USAID plays a central role in the U.S. government's humanitarian response to conflict and forced migration. Uh, last year, I released a comprehensive report on forced displacement, which found that the vast majority of the 80 million displaced people worldwide are not displaced for months, but for years or decades at a time. How will you lead efforts at USAID to ensure coherence between the U.S. humanitarian and development programs and to ensure that a maximum impact is achieved in assisting protracted uh, displacement? Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman. Well, first let me say that those displacement numbers, as you know, are the highest since World War II. Um, uh, every year, we see that number uh, go up. When I was UN ambassador, it was the highest since World War II, uh, and it gets worse and worse. Climate-related events, of course, are a factor, and I think you're likely to see a surge in displacement stemming from the economic fallout from the COVID pandemic. It's important to look behind the numbers at the causes of displacement, which vary. I, I alluded in my testimony to the fact that more conflicts are occurring now that at any point since the end of the Cold War. As you noted just now, conflicts are lasting longer. So it used to be that one conflict would start, but another might have been brought uh, to an end, uh, and uh, that therefore, again, those numbers uh, were not just continuing to grow. But as a new conflict starts, other conflicts are just lasting longer and longer, and so the protracted refugee population is higher than it has been since World War II. Um, the investment that President Biden has committed to making in diplomacy is a critical part of this. We have seen, for example, in Libya, diplomacy produce, for the first time in many years, a UN-brokered transition government. We need diplomacy to pay dividends uh, in Yemen, uh, which is facing the worst humanitarian crisis of any place on Earth. And when it comes to a place like the Northern Triangle, where you have been so active, it's critical to look at the different drivers of migration, which range from uh, physical, personal insecurity and gang violence and corruption to the lack of economic opportunity. Uh, and USAID, again, I think has a really important role to play in mitigating humanitarian suffering, but also looking upstream at why people are leaving their homes uh, in the first place. Thank you. Uh, 
Thank you. Thank you. Let me ask you this. Um, under the last restructuring of USAID, the Democracy Rights and Governance Center was moved under the new Development Democracy and Innovation Bureau. My, my question is, uh, I think this is a, a very significant part of the mission of USAID. I noticed you mentioned among your four pillars. Uh, how will you elevate uh, and integrate democracy and human rights in USAID's response both to the COVID pandemic, which has provided cover for autocrats to attack civil society and diminish human rights, but more, even more broadly. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, Senator. Well, uh, there is a contest in this world occurring now between two models, a democratic model and an authoritarian model. The trends were not pretty before uh, COVID uh, struck, and as you note, they are getting worse in terms of human rights recessions even in established democracies uh, around the world. Um, I think that there would be no question to, to any of the wonderful USAID staff as to the level of priority that I give democracy and human rights. My whole career uh, has been in that field. Uh, I was moved uh, to go into foreign policy by the massacre in Tiananmen Square that occurred in June of 1989 when I was still a college kid. Um, and so on the specifics of whether the Democracy Rights and Governance Center and that programming belongs within uh, the DDI Bureau where it is now, I, I'd love to revert. Uh, but on the substance, I would just like to note that, uh, again, uh, this is incredibly important programming. Partnering with the Department of State and their Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor Bureau looking at anti-corruption work specifically, which is a real Achilles for authoritarian and illiberal countries, I think one we haven't taken full advantage of, uh, this will be a, a huge priority for me, Senator. All right. And finally, uh, you mentioned uh, in your comments, and I think it's one of the central issues that we need to face as we, we, we deal with the challenges uh, uh, of uh, migration and uh, uh, the challenges that we have at the border, um, having AID address violence, corruption, and other drivers of migration in the northern triangle countries are incredibly important as part of uh, when, when Vice President uh, Biden was, when he was Vice President, he had a plan then. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't continued. Uh, there is another provision in, uh, that he has put forth. Uh, how do you see the, the key components of a joint USAID State Department strategy uh, as part of that uh, Northern Triangle effort? Well, just to note that I've been very heartened in the, the briefings that I've been able to have from outside by the reliance on data and evidence in tailoring those programs. Uh, USAID actually uh, gets data from the International Organization of Migration and CBP, the Custom Border Protection, to find out why individuals are leaving their homes, to dig into the specifics uh, to dig into the localities from which they are fleeing. And USAID, prior to the, the funding suspension under the Trump administration, USAID uh, actually has tailored programs around uh, those places where uh, people are most likely to flee and, and tailored programming around, again, the, the causes of migration. So I think that is the right approach. It will take us some time to ramp back up, uh, unfortunately, because uh, some of those programs were suspended uh, but the infrastructure is in place, and I look forward to working with you again to dig into specifics. Thank you. Senator Risch. Thank you. <clears throat> Ambassador Power, you, uh, first of all, thank you for taking the time yesterday uh, and previously for you and I to talk about this position and your confirmation. And one of the things we talked about yesterday was uh, 
national security memorandum number one that uh, President Biden has executed in which the Secretary of State will uh, lead in, in coordination with the USAID administrator the development of the U.S. government-wide plan to combat uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Can I get your thoughts on the record for that, please, briefly? Specifically on COVID-19 or on the structure? Well, well, generally on the structure and then as it relates to COVID-19. Yeah, I mean, I think that as actually COVID-19 illustrates probably better than any contemporary threat, um, uh, our fates, the fates of the American people are connected to health infrastructure, uh, economic prosperity, um, uh, the, the curbing of extremism and radicalization internationally. And so programming that USA does in that regard in cooperation with the State Department and other agencies is incredibly important for our security. And what President Biden has done in elevating USAID and giving it a seat on the National Security Council and in the Principals Committee, I think is just effectively enshrine that reality, which is that our development efforts and our diplomatic efforts have to be resourced and prioritized alongside, of course, uh, our essential uh, defense efforts. Uh, so I think that's the logic, uh, you know, from having spoken with him about, about this decision. Uh, that is the logic of elevating USAID. The expertise is there. The know-how is there, and I think what's really important about doing this is it means that that expertise and know-how will be reflected in the interagency, not only at high levels, but, but uh, at every level. Thank you. Thanks for that answer. Um, moving uh, offshore, uh, the memorandum also refers to a diplomatic out, uh, outreach plan for enhancing the United States' response to the COVID-19 pandemic uh, by engaging partner nations. Could you give me your thoughts on that, please? Thank you, Senator. When I was UN ambassador, I had the privilege of being part of President Obama's effort to mobilize a large anti-Ebola coalition to pre prevent, in that instance, an epidemic, a horrific epidemic from becoming a global pandemic of the kind that we are now living through. Uh, I think the United States is at its most powerful, uh, effective, and efficient when it leverages uh, the support that it offers international institutions or uh, the, the resources that it dedicates to combating global challenges, when it leverages that to get others to do more. And that is what President Biden, I think, has already done in the context of uh, uh, announcing the $2 billion that you allocated uh, late last year for Gavi, for the vaccine effort, uh, that that $2 billion is going to be uh, contributed but it's also going to be leveraged to get other countries to do more before the next $2 billion uh, is, is uh, obligated. And I think that's just one example. Uh, there's not, uh, there hasn't been, I should say, an optimal coordination, I think, in the international global vaccine uh, area, and that's something uh, that I'm very eager to dig into uh, if I'm confirmed. Thank you. I appreciate those thoughts. Um, the Global Health Diplomacy and Security Act, which I introduced, uh, creates a coordinator position uh, at the State Department uh, that is consistent with the type of framework, I believe, that uh, President uh, Biden uh, intends uh, in his memorandum. Uh, are you familiar with that by any chance? And uh, uh, go ahead, your thoughts. Um, 
the the prior version of the bill I, I was familiar with. I have not seen, I, I think, the bill that you either are on the verge of introducing or have just introduced. I appreciate that. And as I indicated, Senator Menendez and I have been talking about uh, the, the global health issue and an effort by this uh, committee in that regard. And I, I intend uh, to work with Senator Menendez on the creation uh, of the framework because obviously that, that's going to depend, uh, the, the success is going to depend on that framework. And I hope to engage you and your agency as we move forward on that. Uh, and with that, my time is up. And thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Risch. Uh, Senator Cardin, who's with us virtually. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ambassador Power. Thank you very much for your willingness to continue to serve our nation. Uh, I want to follow up on comments that you made earlier this year, which was uh, something I was pleased to see, where you indicated that uh, any corruption would be a centerpiece of President Biden's foreign policy agenda. And you've already answered some of that with Senator Menendez in regards to how you're using the DRG Center. Uh, you specifically mentioned in those comments uh, the use of the tools that are at your disposal, including Magnitsky sanctions. Can I take it that you will work with us as we look at permanently authorizing the global Magnitsky statute? Today, it's by executive order and by statute that expires. Uh, we take pretty much what was in the executive order, Senator Wicker and I, and, and codify that as, as permanent authorization. Do we have your support on that legislation? Unequivocally, and, and let me just thank you for the Magnitsky Act, where your leadership was so pivotal. As you know, it has now been replicated to, to a large extent in Europe uh, and in Canada. I think one of our tasks is to ensure that other countries uh, adopt similar measures so that we can multilateralize these corruption and human rights sanctions. And Senator Young and I have introduced legislation to try to build on it to give capacity uh, for uh, our missions to evaluate how well our, uh, the countries in which they operate are dealing with corruption. So it's a it's a way of, of using a standard similar to what we do in trafficking in persons to monitor progress made in fighting corruption. You mentioned in your article anti-bribery statutes yep. and dealing uh, with uh, those, uh, the laundering, anti-laundering statutes, That's et cetera. Uh, will you work with us uh, as we look to enact this law to give you additional tools let me, let me uh, to help fight corruption? Yes, Senator, always looking for additional tools. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So let me talk a little bit about Central America. You already talked a little bit about that with Senator Menendez. And I know that President Biden is looking at providing help to the Central American countries in order to do what's right in our hemisphere from a humanitarian point of view, as well as the practical aspects of migration. But there is systemic corruption in these countries that if we don't deal with it, we are going to be giving money that will not get to its intended purpose. So how do you intend to make sure that our assistance to the Central American countries are used for the people to deal with the problems of Central America and not just fuel corruption? Um, thank you, Senator. You put your finger on uh, a real inhibitor uh, of progress, uh, above all progress for the people uh, of that region. Um, let me say that from what I understand of USAID programming up to this point, there is, of course, a recognition of the barrier that corruption has constituted to economic progress, to progress in combating threats to physical security. And thus, uh, much of the programming is routed 
for example, through uh, local officials who have been identified as reformers or uh, and or civil society partners. Uh, and indeed, many of those partners, as you know, are doing work to hold the central authorities accountable uh, for transgressions uh, and, and for different forms of corruption. It's been disappointing to see uh, some of the strides that were made, for example, in Guatemala and Honduras through CISIG. CISIG was actually the most popular, uh, and I know you were critical in, in, in pushing uh, for its uh, mandates to be renewed successively in, in Guatemala. It was the most popular institution in Guatemala before it was shut down. Um, and so that is disappointing because it had a really important role to play. Uh, then Vice President Biden was also critical uh, in ensuring that it was preserved there. Uh, but I think thinking through at the central level how what more we can do for uh, civil society actors that are holding government accountable to try to change the equation uh, so that those governments uh, that are trending in um, worrying directions uh, reverse that tide. I know that um, we can help you in this regard. We're all, we, I strongly support our involvement in Central America. But when we put conditionality on aid, it gives the administration, I think, the additional strength in dealing with the governments to indicate there's got to be progress made in dealing with uh, the governance issues. So I hope you take that as friendly help when we look at conditionality to make sure that we do achieve progress in dealing with systemic problems in these countries. Uh, with that, Mr. Chairman, I'll, I'll yield back my time. Thank you, Senator. Uh, Senator Portman, who's with us virtually, I understand. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, uh, Ambassador Powers, and also thank you to your husband, Cass Sunstein, for his willingness to come back into public service. Uh, we appreciate your willingness to step up again. Uh, I enjoyed our conversation, and uh, let me follow up a little bit on what Senator Cardin just talked to you about. As you know, I suppose we have spent $3.6 billion of taxpayer money in the Northern Triangle countries, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, in the past five years. Uh, the results are not impressive. Uh, understanding that uh, recently some of the natural disasters in that area, particularly the hurricanes, uh, added to this. But I will tell you, I just got the numbers this morning from last week. Uh, 550 kids per day uh, came into the United States, mostly from the Northern Triangle countries, which is five or six times more than uh, in January when there was less than 100 um, in terms of families. And by the way, there were 300 in February. So we're going up and up and up. In terms of families, 1,500 per day uh, last week as compared to 1,000 in February, on average, less than 100 in January. Again, a 15 times increase. So uh, the push factors are not being addressed effectively. People are coming. Uh, the pull factors are that the changes were made in policies to allow people to come and they're responding and the traffickers are responding. So I guess uh, what I would ask you is how you would do it differently. Uh, Senator Cardin uh, rightly asked you about corruption and I believe insisting on transparency and rule of law and tying our, our aid is important. Uh, by the way, of, of that $3.6 billion, as you know, much was sent through the Millennium Challenge Corporation, MCC, which has precisely those criteria and others to ensure the money is well spent. But I guess I would ask you also about tying it to immigration and specifically requiring those countries to work with us to have people apply for asylum from their country of origin, or if they feel it's unsafe to do it in a safe third country, which is one of the programs that was discontinued uh, 
by the current administration. In other words, someone could apply in Guatemala for asylum if they are from Honduras, uh, which would be the first the country that they would come into, a, a safe third country. Do you believe that that is an appropriate condition to us spending what President Biden has now suggested, which is another $4 billion on top of the $3.6 billion that has been sent in the last five years? Thank you, Senator. Um, well, first, just to embrace the premise of your question that we have a responsibility to be effective, um, vigilant stewards of taxpayer resources. Uh, this is an immensely challenging set of uh, problems and, and uh, as you, you call them, push factors uh, out of the region. Uh, to deal with. There are no silver bullets, needless to say. If there were, someone would have found one uh, along the way. Um, but I, I guess I just offer a, a few thoughts. I mean, first of all, uh, there is actually compelling data, um, and I, I look forward to digging into the numbers uh, further if I'm, if I'm confirmed, uh, but that shows that, for example, in uh, the uh, districts where USAID had programming aimed uh, at curbing violence. For example, in, in, in El Salvador between 2015 and 2017, there was a 61% drop uh, in homicide rates. Uh, there are comparable numbers uh, in terms of the statistics uh, in uh, districts that USAID programming was set up uh, in Honduras uh, with, a, with a slightly smaller drop, but nonetheless a very substantial drop uh, in, in homicide rates. I think that's encouraging. Um, I think you know, suspending the programs uh, unfortunately gave us um, less influence uh, in using our programming uh, to work with those reformist officials who were willing, uh, again, to crack Ambassador, down on let me, violence. Let me uh, interrupt just, just for a second because I want to get to another topic as well. But just on this topic, having just been at the border the last few days, um, I did talk to a lot of uh, unaccompanied kids and also to families and, and single uh, men coming over from Central America. And... Um, as you know, the constant refrain is, I can make 10 or sometimes 20 times as much in America. I want to take care of my family. So I agree that dealing with the violence is important. And I applaud those uh, changes. And in fact, not only has violence uh, been dealt with in those countries, so that the numbers are a little better generally, but also uh, the economic situation is a little better, although the hurricanes and the uh, COVID-19 numbers are probably not going to be as good. But it's 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 an economic issue uh, primarily. In other words, people will will still be looking to come to the United States. And my question to you was, should we condition billions of dollars in taxpayer money, uh, not just on the important things that Senator Cardin talked about, but also on working with us on this issue of immigration and specifically on asylum claims? Do you agree with that? Well, I I think that the. One of your, your premises, if I understood it, of uh, putting individuals in a position where they could apply for uh, in refugee status or asylum uh, mm -hmm. in the region mm -hmm. rather than entrusting, for example, their right. children to cougars. Rather than taking a dangerous uh, uh, course. Uh, um, I don't think any, any parent, uh, you know, uh, relishes uh, the, the uh, entrusting of one's child, again, to a... Uh, to a smuggler. So one of the things that we looked at in the Obama administration, as you know, was setting up these uh, UNHCR offices in the region. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that President Biden is looking at again, uh, and that's very important. But, but you put your finger again on one of the major causes of migration, which is um, the lack of economic opportunity. And that is something that USAID has a lot of experience investing in. You're right. We have not 
produce the same kinds of results as I've uh, pointed to when it comes to physical security uh, and crime. Uh, but I think that, you know now with tailored programming not being everywhere, but being specifically in those communities uh, where we know that there's the highest concentration of migrants, uh, we can uh, working with you and, and being held accountable. Uh, hopefully, begin to make. Well, Ambassador, I hope you I hope you work with. I think my, my time is, is getting to, toward the end here. But my you, question again specifically: the senator's is, time is past expired, and, and the violence issues, but. Also, if you could work with us on this issue of immigration and asylum uh, so people can apply from their home country or a safe third country. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, Senator Coons, who uh, just returned from the Tigray region and Ethiopia on a mission, and we appreciate his work, and uh, you are recognized. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member Rich and Ambassador Power. Uh, welcome. Um, thank you for your willingness to serve our nation again and to Cass and to Declan and to Rian. Um, thank you uh, for supporting your uh, wife and mother and uh, her tremendous uh, service to our nation. You're taking on this role, um, hopefully, once confirmed at a critically important time. Uh, we all saw how in the last year of the previous administration, the absence of a Senate-confirmed administrator, the absence of clear and forceful leadership led to real drift and some challenges operationally and organizationally. And um, there are humanitarian crises all over the world, as many of us will comment today, from Venezuela to Yemen to Burma to Ethiopia to many other nations, and um, clear and capable leadership at USAID is critical. I have profound respect and appreciation for the work of the USAID of folks who are deployed around the world. I just had the opportunity to meet with uh, a number of the humanitarian partners and leaders um, that USAID is relying on in Ethiopia, as I have elsewhere. I also think it's critical we continue to explain to the average American how the work of USAID overseas helps keep us safer and more healthy and more prosperous. And tragically, COVID-19 is an opportunity for us to remind folks exactly how vaccinating the rest of the world is critical to preventing new variants from breaking out and from harming all of us. So I look forward to working with you in my role as the chairman of the State and Foreign Operations Appropriations Subcommittee uh, and to having a meaningful dialogue. Uh, let me dive in first, if I could, uh, to what I just saw. Um, if confirmed, can we count on USAID to work with this committee and with all of us in Congress to ensure that we are addressing the humanitarian uh, crisis um, throughout Ethiopia and in particular in the Tigray region? Absolutely. Thank you for taking the trip that you took. The USAID, as you know, just made an announcement of an additional $52 million in humanitarian support. I think that's makes the contribution so far 150 million plus since the crisis began but the humanitarian mitigating the humanitarian suffering of course uh, is not all we need to be doing we need to get at the root causes uh, uh, of of that suffering and secure access so that that food can be delivered so thank you for what you've done to try to make that happen and I'm optimistic we will make progress now on humanitarian access um, I also met with the head of the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission Daniel Bekele, um, and discussed with him uh, and with other international leaders about carrying out a thorough and independent investigation of human rights abuses. Um, the UN High Commissioner uh, for Human Rights, uh, Michelle Bachelet, has also talked recently about doing a joint investigation. From your career uh, working in human rights issues, what kind of investigation do you think would be most effective and have the greatest impact uh, in uh, getting to the root of human rights violations? that have occurred? Well, the uh, biggest challenge traditionally for international 
uh, human rights investigations, especially independent ones, is securing access. And so uh, the key is not only getting the uh, approval from the center and from the prime minister for something like that, but making sure that that agreement trickles down uh, and that there's a willingness on the part uh, of the authorities who've granted access <clears throat> to ensure uh, that you know the checkpoints don't go up then uh, as soon as the investigators deploy. Uh, there are many, many uh, countries where atrocity allegations have occurred, uh, have developed, uh, unfortunately, creative uh, traditions of erecting roadblocks uh, you know, where it matters. Uh, in other words, harassing, intimidating witnesses and so forth, denying visas uh, to particular communities, blaming so-called uncontrolled militia uh, you know, without at the center really taking steps to make sure that those militia allow investigators to do that well, work. Well, I look forward to partnering with you and relying on your advice and exactly how to make sure that this uh, commitment that's uh, recently been announced uh, by the prime minister to investigate um, and this partnership that I think is uh, quite possible is successful. Um, there's a number of things I look forward to working with you on. The implementation of the Global Fragility Act, uh, a bill that I helped lead that's been signed into law that is a new tool to ensure that development and diplomacy um, take the lead in support of defense work in securing uh, countries from the Sahel to the Northern Triangle, the Nidaloe Middle East Partnership for Peace Act and ensuring that we're investing in um, both people-to-people -people programs and joint economic ventures to facilitate uh, the conditions for a possible two-state solution and then ways in which we can keep the Development Finance Corporation a development finance corporation and to best use uh, the MCC. My last question will be uh, for you about the critical role that delivering um, safe and effective vaccines to the developing role, world can play um, in continuing our role as one of the world's leading supporters of effective public health programs. Um, there's been a significant increase in the appropriated funds available through COVAX. We've rejoined WHO. What do you think we most need to do to ensure the prompt and equitable distribution of effective vaccines globally? Well, let me just cite, Senator, the International Chamber of Commerce report. I think we discussed it on the phone uh, a month or two ago, but that shows that until and unless there is uh, economic recovery by virtue of vaccinations and, and curbing of the pandemic in the developing world, it's going to cost the global economy $9 trillion, including uh, developed countries $4.5 trillion. Between that and the issue of variants, uh, where as long as the pandemic is raging somewhere, there is a chance of some uh, mutation and variant um, uh, moving aggressively. Uh, it is so in our interest uh, to, to make that happen. COVAX, if fully funded, uh, will vaccinate 20% of people, they hope, uh, by the end of this year, 20% of people in developing countries. That's not sufficient. Uh, and so looking to see how COVAX uh, is being supplemented by bilateral donations, surplus donations, uh, and other, other uh, contributions, I think is really important. Thank, Thank you, Madam Ambassador. Thank you. Senator Paul. Good morning. Welcome. Yeah. Many on the left are horrified at being associated with the neocon foreign policy, but it is no small irony that the end results of responsibility to protect are in reality little different than the interventionist policies of John Bolton and Bill Kristol. Like the neocons, the liberal advocates of responsibility to protect have advocated for military intervention in Libya, Syria, and Yemen. Sure, the reasoning might be more humanitarian than geopolitical, 
But the advocacy for military intervention ends up looking pretty much the same. I remember liking what candidate Obama said about military intervention, that without congressional approval, it was only justified when there was an imminent threat. After President Obama began bombing Libya, I asked him at lunch one day, what about your pledge to ask and seek congressional permission unless there was an imminent threat? He responded that there was an imminent threat to Benghazi. I looked at him incredulously and responded, really, an imminent threat to a foreign city is your justification for an unauthorized war? The responsibility to protect ideology did not learn much from the Libyan debacle and immediately pushed the Obama administration to jump into Syria. Many on the left, like Secretary Blinken, don't admit that there was too much intervention. They actually believe in Syria that they failed because there was too little military intervention. Several hundred thousand people have died in Syria, and more than a million refugees have been displaced. If you're talking about humanitarianism, famine, the wars, really other than natural causes, war is the number one cause of famine around the world. An argument can be made, though, that Assad would probably massacred far fewer people had the West and the Gulf states stayed out of the civil war. Are you willing to admit that the Libyan and Syrian military interventions that you advocated for were a mistake and that going forward you will be more conscious, conscious of the unintended humanitarian disasters that seem to occur again and again with our military interventions in Africa and throughout the Middle East? Thank you, Senator. Um, well, f first, if I may, just talk about USAID and its role, uh, which I think can be very important in Libya today. Uh, I think before you arrived, I mentioned that there's a power-sharing government has finally been set up in Libya. USAID right now, because of the security conditions, uh, operates its programs largely from... But you'd acknowledge Libya is worse now than it was before we started bombing them. I, I think it's really important with Libya uh, having the opportunity to have elections at the end of this year for us to do what we can to support those elections. Um, I think it's in the face of mass atrocities, there are a whole set of non-military tools that are, I, I would hope that, that you would uh, support deploying. We, we had some successes with them, for example, in helping bring about the South Sudanese referendum, which was a, a, a risk of grave atrocities occurring uh, uh, back in the first term of the Obama administration. Uh, an attempt to steal an election in Cote d'Ivoire where diplomatic pressure uh, averted mass atrocities, and even uh, sending technical advisors, military advisors, to Central Africa to combat the Lord's Resistance Army, which kidnaps children. And you think we were successful in Libya? That Libya is a better place because of our military intervention, or Syria? The the decision uh, that President Obama made um, when confronted with the risk to the people of Benghazi and other civilian centers was. Uh, an incredibly difficult one, and um, again, in sitting in the Situation Room, I think it's hard now to to remember. You know, with the United Nations, NATO, the Arab League, this body, the Senate, unanimously calling for a no-fly zone. Uh, President Obama made the judgment that that uh, the risks of allowing Benghazi to fall and the slaughter that would ensue were were not. I know it's a tough decision, there. but in retrospect, was Libya a good 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 idea to military intervene in in Libya? Well, good idea to militarily intervene in Syria in retrospect. I think the challenge is that we we uh, don't have the counterfactual, um, and and uh, certainly the the fallout in the in the wake of the intervention, the centrifugal forces have been incredibly 
difficult uh, to, to manage and, above all, hard on the Libyan people. But we have to learn a lesson sometime. I mean, we went into Libya. We went into Iraq. We destabilized Iraq. We're still dealing with that. We went into Libya, destabilized Libya. We're still dealing with that. Syria, the same thing. And Yemen as well. So, I mean, there, there should be an accumulation of knowledge and a learning curve here that our interventions make things worse, not better. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. I certainly agree that uh, non-military tools in the toolbox uh, are, uh, carry with them far fewer risks. Um, I oppose the war in Iraq. I agree with you on Yemen. All I'm trying to describe is that, that, that when these situations arise, uh, it, it is a, a question almost of lesser evils, uh, that the choices are very challenging. Thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and congratulations, uh, Ambassador Power, for your nomination. Um, you, you've been a human rights activist. You've played a number of roles with the Obama administration, including UN Ambassador, and now you are poised to take the helm of a critical uh, engine of humanitarian assistance around the globe. So I'm going to ask you questions that kind of combine all the roles, both about what you might do at USAID, but also how you see some of the challenges that that affect the committee. You uh, began your prepared remarks with four gargantuan challenges, and one was democracy backsliding, and I want to talk to you about that. We're seeing it everywhere. We're seeing it in every continent. We're seeing, as you indicate, declines in freedom and democracy indices, whether you're looking at you know, Freedom House annual reports or the Economist Democracy Index annual reports. Um, President Biden has indicated that sometime either later this year or earlier next year, he wants to convene a summit of democracies, which I think is a great idea. Um, how would you foresee USAID being part of what the U.S. might do in convening such a summit? Um, just share your thoughts on that. Thank you. If, if I might, just because the democracy and human rights numbers are uh, so uh, unfortunate and, and depressing, just to offer something on the other side of the ledger, uh, prior to the pandemic, there were more political protests that occurred in more places than at any point in modern recorded history. So on the one hand, you have states increasingly uh, repressing their people and growing more sophisticated in shutting down the internet and in uh, stifling space for civil society. Uh, on the other hand, uh, many, many people are not getting that memo <laughs> and are insisting on uh, taking their protests and their concerns uh, to the streets and, and holding governments accountable. So I think there's a lot to work with out there of uh, concerns about violations of dignity and rights and a desire for the United States uh, to play a leadership role uh, in, in promoting human rights, of course, with, with humility. With regard to the summit, I'm not privy uh, to the deliberations and, and sort of what the, what the planning and thinking uh, is, either on timing or on the details of substance. But I think there are a lot of opportunities uh, to, to collaborate and for USA to play an important role, for example, in combating misinformation uh, and sharing best practices for doing so, in protecting election infrastructure. Um, from not only from misinformation, but from, from hacking uh, and, and other forms of intrusion. The anti-corruption uh, uh, programs that have been effective in holding governments accountable or in bringing civil society uh, into uh, conversations that are too often top-down, I think there are, there are a lot uh, of lessons that can be imparted in that regard. And often, uh, Senator, I think it's, it's countries that themselves are at different stages of, of democratic progression 
uh, that have the most valuable lessons uh, to impart to those countries that are just becoming democratic. For example, the country of Sudan, which is experiencing a political transition. It's a long way from being a, a full and, and, and uh, a full Jeffersonian democracy. That, that Sudan is a good example of, of something um, I agree with you. You would agree with me that in something like a summit of democracies, it would be very important not to just focus on like a NATO like U.S. and Europe or an OECD, just kind of the big developed nations, but we should include large and small democracies, mature and nascent uh, from every continent on the planet. I mean, shouldn't that be the goal of such a summit? Uh, again, I don't know how the, the current administration is, is thinking about the summit. I, I can tell you, Senator, from having uh, helped uh, design invitation lists as a U.N. ambassador, that, that uh, questions of who's in and who's out are, are, are actually quite challenging, I think. And, and, it, but I'm not asking about particular nations. I'm just yeah. saying it would have less utility if it's just seen as kind of a U.S. and Europe thing or a big nation thing, right? I mean, if we're going to have a summit of democracies, there are democracies on every continent. They're big and small and nascent and mature. And if we're going to try to uphold the model and share best practices, we should not have kind of a U.S. or U.S. and Europe-centric view. We should try to include democracies from everywhere. I think the more demographically and culturally and regionally representative we can be in general in talking about democracy and human rights, the better the progress I was able to make as UN ambassador on LGBTQ rights would not have happened without the leadership of Latin American countries who were at the forefront there. So I, I agree with the premise of your question. I'm just not familiar with, with what the plans are for the summit. Thank you. I don't have any other questions. Mr. Chair, thanks. Thank you. Senator Young. Welcome, Ambassador, and uh, congratulations on your nomination. Thank you. As you know, the People's Republic of China is using development dollars to advance its foreign policy goals through programs like the Belt and Road Initiative. Some have proposed expanding DFC's work uh, to enable it to more effectively uh, combat China's investments by targeting middle-income countries or perhaps utilizing DFC to support the export of U.S.-made emerging technologies. Whether through USAID or DFC, uh, it's absolutely essential that our development dollars, I think, be used to advance our geostrategic priorities. So, uh, Ambassador, how would you like to see our development agencies improved so that we're able to more effectively compete with China? Thank you. Um, the way in which I alluded to this in my opening statement, but that China is using its economic leverage and heft uh, not only to, uh, in often a predatory way, but uh, not only to, to change governing practices within countries, but in my old place of work, the United Nations, to actually leverage those financial commitments to change the rules of the road altogether and to water down uh, international human rights commitments and so forth uh, for fear that those laws and norms will be used against China. Uh, it, 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 it warrants urgent, immediate, and well-resourced attention. I think you asked about improvement, um, and I'm, uh, again, incredibly impressed with what USAID staff have done and, and was very impressed with the leadership of Mark Green in this area. Uh, I think you and Senator Coons and others have worked on uh, making the DFC a much more powerful tool in the American toolbox. I think increasing coordination between the Millennium Challenge, Challenge Corporation, the DFC, USAID and the range of other development actors is, is one answer. I think recognizing our comparative advantages 
you know, we actually uh, believe in local self-reliance. That is what we are working toward. We want uh, countries not to be dependent on international assistance. So uh, the investments we make are in their ability to have agency and to dictate their own affairs. This is very sure. different, I think, than the China model. Go ahead, sir. No. Uh, uh, so you mentioned local self-reliance. I'm going to get into that uh, momentarily since uh, you brought that up. Might you support expanding DFC's mission to target areas in the developed world where China's attempting to make inroads? Um, I'd want to look into that and, and hear from you and, and others um, just Again, my, my, having not worked uh, yet within the administration or, or dug into DFC-related questions, if I could. Uh, but I think certainly the, the question for American foreign policy broadly is not only, uh, you know, how do we deal with China in sub-Saharan Africa and the inroads they're making there, uh, but across the developed world as well. You mentioned self-reliance. Uh, that emphasis on, on making countries self-reliance, uh, I think, is itself an advantage, right? Because uh, uh, all peoples, I think, not just most people, all people want to be more self-reliant, uh, less reliant upon foreign nations and, and others. It's, it's sort of wired into our DNA. How would you say America's national security interests are helped by making countries more self-reliant? Is that consistent with your thinking? Absolutely consistent with my thinking, and, okay. and I think you put your finger on it. It's you cannot travel the world uh, and talk to individuals, whether they're those who are receiving UN food assistance or those receiving technical assistance in a government ministry, without being struck by how eager they are uh, to not be uh, dependent uh, on international assistance. Um, and I think that's something USAID staff have, have uh, taken to heart. So, uh, is, there, is there a way that we might, uh, or, or how, how should we measure self-reliance? Um, well, I think domestic resource mobilization is something that USAID has invested a lot in. So making sure that countries are able to collect their own tax infrastructure, strengthening the rule of law so that there's an ability, uh, you know, not only for NGOs to, to hold inter, uh, governmental actors accountable for potential corruption or malfeasance, uh, but also the courts uh, and, and making sure there's an independent judiciary. So work in those domains, I think, as well. And then lastly, in, in, in summary fashion, I'll just ask you, um, how would you use your seat on the Development Finance Corporation's executive board to ensure that uh, DFC and USAID's complementary missions are furthering uh, achieving self-reliance in our target countries? Um, I, I really look forward to that individual being named, nominated, uh, confirmed, and, and sitting down with them. I, I think a critical answer to your question about China, but also our, our larger question about just enhancing development for the sake of U.S. security and prosperity lies in that partnership. Uh, and uh, the resources that the DFC bring to bear, but also specifically they bring to bear what countries most want which is private sector investment and, and really to move away from assistance uh, to the, a more equal relationship of that nature. Thank you, Ambassador. I'll be submitting some questions for the record about Burma. Okay. Uh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Uh, I understand that Senator Schatz is uh, with us virtually. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, and thank you, Ambassador, for being willing to serve. Again, thank you to your family. Uh, USAID is already 
leading uh, in climate in our foreign assistance. We see that in the work of the bureaus, the various offices and the regional missions. But I do think there's more that we can do to make sure that there is leadership at the top uh, to help to steer the agency's climate work. So there's an advocate for consistent and reliable funding and someone to establish a clear set of uh, priorities uh, for USAID's mission. Can you um, talk about where we might make some permanent structural changes at USAID so that our emphasis on climate is embedded into our budget, our priorities and our objectives going forward and so that it doesn't swing back and forth depending on uh, who's the President of the United States? Uh, thank, thank you, Senator, and, and thank you for your uh, leadership on, on climate. Um, I am struck by how much work uh, is already being done, and, and you're alluding to this, uh, at USAID um, as it relates to disaster risk reduction, uh, helping those countries that want to transition um, and uh, to clean energy or to lower their carbon emissions, uh, above all, uh, dealing with something that I know you've worked on in the Pacific Island context, which is uh, mitigation and adaptation uh, for, especially with Pacific Island countries, those countries that are only a few feet above sea level and really suffering uh, devastating effects of, of climate events um, and just uh, the rising sea levels. Um, but you, you asked a, a question more about the, the sort of bureaucratic instantiation of these efforts. I think uh, for starters, uh, I will want to get smarter at a granular level about what USAID is already doing and, and was doing um, under, under the prior administration. Uh, I think as well, uh, thinking through what it means uh, to acknowledge that climate touches just about every aspect of USAID programming from food security to displacement and humanitarian emergency to we had exchange, an exchange earlier about conflict and the causes of conflict and how we can address root causes. So given that, what is the appropriate uh, bureaucratic sort of structure for that disaster risk reduction, adaptation, mitigation, emissions reduction expertise? You know, what is the best way to channel all the expertise that exists within the building so that it is reflective of the, the fact that this expertise needs to permeate so many domains. And so I don't have an answer for you today, Senator. If you have ideas, uh, I'd love to hear them. But it, I think it's incredibly important to make sure that the structure is fit for purpose uh, at this moment. Thank you. I want to uh, stay uh, in Oceania and talk a little bit about uh, not disaster response, but disaster preparation. You know, the United States government is very effective in disaster response. I think of the Fukushima Daiichi uh, earthquake and tsunami. I think of the 2004 uh, Indian Ocean tsunami that uh, impacted uh, coastal Thailand among other places. And of course we are there uh, for the rescue. Uh, but um, for such a small amount of money, um, we're able to prevent some of these disasters. Obviously the natural disasters are unpreventable, but for the simple price of about $500,000, uh, we were able to deploy some sea level gauges so that people would get early warning about tsunamis and um, save life. Um, and, and, and I just wonder um, how you're looking at not just disaster response and mitigation in terms of hard infrastructure, but especially early warning systems and those um, relatively easy to deploy and inexpensive to purchase um, uh, the kinds of assistance that really help uh, island nations and whether USAID would be amenable uh, to really taking a look throughout Oceania about that. 
I, I cannot wait to dig into that set of questions if I'm confirmed. Uh, I do. I did read a little bit about it just as I was been preparing these last weeks uh, for this hearing. And uh, as you said, just with such modest uh, financial investments, I read about these beetles that were working with NOAA uh, to provide countries uh, that in low connectivity areas allow people to communicate warnings of uh, extreme weather events to come. Uh, I think that's just a great example uh, of, of the kinds of uses of technology, uh, the uses of satellites, the uses of surveillance uh, that we can bring to bear to, to mitigate harms. So eager all ears um, and look forward to hearing more about what USAID staff, which have been so creative in this domain, have, have already done. Sea level gauges, dart buoys, uh, drones for reconnaissance and disaster response. Uh, all of these are really inexpensive, even in the context of USA, but certainly in the context of our overall foreign aid uh, and defense budget. Uh, so look forward to working with you on all of these things. Thank you, Ambassador. Thank you, Senator. Thank you. I understand Senator Haggerty is with us uh, virtually. Yes, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ambassador, I'd like to commend your two children for attending today. I know that it, uh, it takes a lot for a family to be as supportive as they have been of their parents. And I hope they obtain a great civics lesson today and I commend them for joining you and for being so supportive of your service. You know, to the extent that the United States spends development funds overseas, I know we all want to make certain that those funds are spent in a manner that is efficient and as effective as possible at serving our interest. So I'd like to turn our attention to women's empowerment. Uh, as you know, to the extent that women flourish in a nation, their economies flourish, their democracies flourish, and we tend to see more stability. The previous administration put together a tremendous program, the Women's Global Development and Prosperity Initiative. And Congress has allocated some $200 million this fiscal year. It enjoys great bipartisan support from this committee, and I think it has tremendous potential. Ambassador, I'd like to ask you first if you're aware of this program, and then further, how would you go about the implementation and making sure that we see this program through uh, as it's intended? Uh, thank you, Senator. Just to uh, wholeheartedly agree with your various premises about the link between women's empowerment and education and increased GDPs, peace processes last longer if women are included and at the table. Um, as to the program that you're referencing, uh, I have certainly read about it. I would like, if I could, to dig into it, uh, again, if I'm fortunate enough to be confirmed, and look at also how it fits alongside other uh, USAID investments, for example, in girls' education, in other uh, efforts to catalyze entrepreneurship for, for women and girls. Um, but uh, again, I share, share your premises and am happy to, to consult with you on that uh, going forward. Well, I appreciate that, and I would underscore that this is a terrific program, and I think it has tremendous potential. So I hope that it'll take a premier role as you evaluate what you may do if confirmed uh, in, in the implementation of programs that will help advance our interest overseas. Along those same lines, I'd like to shift gears and talk a bit about nations that are vulnerable to Chinese influence, and specifically the implementation of Chinese technology into their networks and their infrastructure. Are there things that you might be able to accomplish that USAID could accomplish that would help make these nations less vulnerable to Chinese penetration, help them stand up against the, the sort of uh, incentivization 
that the Chinese often will give to get other types of benefits. Uh, can you address that concern, please? Thank you. Well, I think some of the answer is diplomatic. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the last administration, I think, exerted a lot of diplomatic pressure on countries, and some of it was uh, uh, proved, I think, ultimately effective. Uh, for example, the United Kingdom reversing uh, uh, its prior decision on Huawei and, and 5G. Uh, so I look forward to working with Secretary Blinken uh, in that regard. But also, I had a couple exchanges earlier, sir, about the comparative advantages of U.S. aid uh, assistance and U.S. development assistance more broadly. And I do think the fact that we stand for digital and secure, uh, secure and open digital infrastructure is a comparative advantage. It's something that, that uh, aligns with the aspirations of hundreds of millions of people around the world. Um, and so part of the investments that USAID makes in civil society and in non-governmental actors, part of our work with the DFC, uh, knowing how much countries uh, value private sector investment from the United States, I think linking uh, these conversations and, and recognizing that uh, for American companies, for example, the investment climate is more hospitable in the event of an open and secure uh, digital infrastructure. I think that can be part of our leverage alongside questions of how USAID spends, uh, expends its resources. Well, I appreciate your time and effort looking at how we might better leverage our position to ensure that the networks around the globe remain free and clear. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I understand Senator Van Hollen is with us virtually. Uh, yes, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman and, and Ranking Member for this hearing and Madam Ambassador, it's great to see you. Uh, thank you for your past service uh, to our country and for your willingness uh, to serve again uh, in this capacity if confirmed and uh, it is great to see uh, your family. Uh, you, Senator Murphy and I have proposed a, a new foreign policy uh, budget to really meet the needs of the, this century and, and the year 2021, uh, recognizing that uh, many of the threats uh, that we face are transnational, global, uh, from climate change uh, to pandemics uh, to cybersecurity. Uh, and we look forward to working with you uh, to explore uh, that budget. Uh, it includes a significant increase uh, in the budget for AID, among other things. Uh, and part of the idea is, is also to combat uh, what uh, Senator Haggerty was just uh, discussing, uh, which is uh, China's very active and aggressive effort to export its model uh, of authoritarianism uh, to the developing uh, world through a number of instruments, um, including uh, debt trap uh, diplomacy, the Belt and Road uh, Initiative, uh, their focus has been on sort of major infrastructure projects. Um, and, you know, decades ago, AID was also uh, very focused on building larger infrastructure products, uh, projects. Uh, if you could just comment on how you see the role of AID uh, in the developing world um, in the context of China's ongoing uh, efforts, uh, but with the toolbox uh, that you have, I mean, should we consider changing uh, the mix in our toolbox uh, as, as we go forward? And, and, and how do you see that, that challenge? Uh, 
Thank you, Senator. Understandably, this has come up uh, a good bit today, uh, just as it comes up every day uh, in the in the world. Um, and and I should say thank you to you and Senator Murphy for um, for looking into uh, this question of of how development diplomacy, our foreign affairs budget, uh, should be tailored for this for this moment. Um, so look forward to seeing what comes of that uh, exercise. Uh, I have seen the preliminary numbers, um, but look forward to more. You know, I think that um, the the phrase I keep coming back to is comparative advantage. And um, you alluded to debt trap diplomacy. I think, you know, on the one hand, this has been a year of tremendous Chinese expansionism and aggressiveness uh, when it comes to developing countries and when it comes to uh, it's, it's near abroad as well. We've seen that in Hong Kong. We've seen it in the South China Sea. We've seen it in the Indian border. Um, but it hasn't gone that well for, for China. There, you actually see... Uh, you know, very poor polling uh, when it comes to China's standing in the world, even with the donations of protective gear in light of the COVID pandemic, you, you don't see uh, increases in soft power, uh, quite the contrary, uh, in, in, in light of COVID and, and the, the, the status of the global economy and how much different countries have, have suffered from that. Um, and, and I think it's in part because people recognize that this coercive and predatory approach, uh, which is so transactional and, and seemingly not really rooted in, in uh, encouraging countries to achieve their own destinies, their own development objectives, I, I think it's not going over that well. And that creates an opening uh, for the United States. I think our comparative advantages are uh, our uh, support for accountable governance, which aligns with what citizens want worldwide, uh, our ability to not only bring in the DFC, but but in in parallel uh, private sector investments, which countries uh, hunger for, um, the fact that we uh, are uh, carrying out programming that is supportive of various countries' environmental objectives. So many of these countries cherish the natural resources that they've been given, uh, and and so I think our approach, which is helping them sustain those resources rather than pillaging them. Uh, is something that also gives us a comparative advantage. So, so I can go on, and again, I think it's country-specific in terms of what, this, what the, the programming, how the programming should be tailored, but fundamentally it's about supporting those countries achieve uh, their objectives and, and uh, their goals of becoming self-reliant and not being dependent on assistance. I appreciate that. Um, I also want to follow up uh, briefly on the line of questioning from Senator Coons uh, regarding uh, our, our role in working with others in the world to, to defeat uh, the coronavirus. Um, as you indicated, the COVAX uh, facility, uh, we hope, uh, will vaccinate about 20 percent uh, of the developing uh, world. Uh, but it's in their interest and in our interest, obviously, to stop the spread of variants uh, as quickly as possible, variants that, that could potentially, um, you know, become more, more immune to uh, vaccines. Um, and then there's the economic fallout, both in those countries um, and the global economy. Um, what do you see as AID's role specifically uh, in trying to expand the vaccination uh, effort and the use of excess uh, U.S. vaccine supplies? 
Um, well, because it will be some time before uh, everyone is vaccinated in the world uh, and in the developing world, uh, it's really important not to lose sight of the diagnostic and the treatment support that we can offer, uh, the support as well as we go in, in rebuilding health infrastructure that has been completely overwhelmed uh, by the, the human costs of this pandemic. I also think, you know, there's no question that the humanitarian toll uh, at, when it comes to severe malnutrition is going to be substantial. And USAID, of course, uh, brings uh, great assets when it comes to meeting humanitarian emergencies and supporting uh, organizations like the World Food Program and others in meeting uh, food needs and, and, and humanitarian needs. So I think there's to, to look at the pandemic both as the vaccination challenge, which we've talked about earlier, uh, as a, a treatment challenge, but then not to lose sight of the fact that measles and TB and polio treatments and vaccines, uh, all of those have lagged behind, uh, and nor to lose sight of the need to ensure that this is the last pandemic that does this uh, kind of, of damage uh, and, and, and to be building again in the infrastructure uh, that these countries need to be able to fend for themselves in the future. Thank you, Madam Ambassador. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, Senator uh, Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, good to see you, Ambassador. Thank you for your willingness to serve. Again, uh, let me just quickly associate myself with a, a few comments uh, and lines of questioning from uh, uh, other members on the committee. First, um, let me join with Senator Young in uh, recommending that um, you know, you play a forceful role uh, at the DFC with respect to increasing their capability uh, to be able to finance projects abroad. Um, we have obviously targeted DFC's um, financing towards the developing world for good reason, but China plays a different game. Uh, we carved out a billion dollars uh, through legislation written by myself and Senator Johnson about a year ago to allow for energy projects to be financed in non-developing countries. Um, I think we're going to have to uh, continue to expand the aperture uh, when it comes to the type of countries and type of economies that DFC is able to do business in in order to compete with China. Let me um, uh, just associate myself with Senator Van Hollen's comments. You and I have talked ad nauseum about the need to dramatically increase our non-military toolkit, and now you'll be in a perfect position to uh, advocate for those resources. Uh, my hope is that the administration, when it submits its budget, um, you know, will make a substantial uh, down payment on those smart power tools. Um, just no way to compete with China or prevent the next pandemic or fight climate change if you're uh, still funding, you know, more employees at military grocery stores than diplomats representing America abroad. Um, my lines of questioning um, uh, are on the ability of USAID uh, to be able uh, to, to be nimble enough to meet the changing nature of very complex challenges. Um, the first is on the topic of how we get our USAID t team outside the wire. Um, we have significantly downsized, as an example, we've significantly downsized our embassy in Baghdad. I think right now we have four USAID officers overseeing a billion dollars of funding there. Um, but it's not unfamiliar what's happening there all over the world. We're having a harder time getting our, our diplomats and our economic development officers outside of embassies. Um, second, um, we also have a lack of flexibility in the way that USAID can deploy funds. 
um, Congress tends to compartmentalize and earmark dollars so that when a challenge pops up, it's difficult for the USAID administrator to put the dollars into uh, the place that really needs it. So I wondered if you talk for a second about the, the, the need to be able to move USAID personnel uh, around to places that need to see American presidents, um, but also the need for Congress to work with you to try to give some more flexibility to um, the accounts that you're going to oversee. Uh, th thank you, Senator. Both uh, such important questions. Um, so when it comes to uh, the circumstance for USAID personnel and U.S. diplomatic personnel, as you know, it's very challenging with more conflicts happening than at any point since the end of the Cold War with extremists, you know, who do uh, harbor, depending on, again, where we're talking about, can harbor uh, ill intent uh, toward U.S. personnel. Uh, you know, we, we uh, need to take security precautions and, and keep our personnel safe. At the same time, uh, you will never meet people more eager to be out in the communities where the beneficiaries of U.S. programming are than, than USAID uh, personnel. I mean, that is what uh, drew these uh, extraordinary men and women to this agency in the first place. Uh, you know, many of them are former Peace Corps volunteers or people who have taught English when they were, uh, you know, practically in high school, uh, you know, living in, the, in these communities. So I think I look forward to working with Secretary Blinken and, and our security professionals uh, to, to being sure that we have the balance right there. And then uh, when it comes to flexibility in deploying funds, I do think this relates to the conversation that we've been having about China. Uh, the, the, you know, we, and actually the ranking member Rish and I spoke about this a little bit in his office yesterday. Uh, we, we want uh, our assistance to be fit for purpose. We want our rules and regulations to be fit for purpose. We need to be accountable to the American people given the generosity uh, and, and the spirit behind the investments that are being made through USAID. Um, I, I certainly, if confirmed, want to be responsive to the objectives that people have up here, and, and that's why you see a lot of those earmarks, is that people have uh, strong commitments and, and want to see particular programming. Um, and from what I can tell, you know, that's the kind of programming that I would wish to see as well. Uh, but we really do need to make sure that we are able to move uh, quickly. I know Administrator Green uh, made some inroads uh, on this issue, uh, but I do think there's more to be done uh, to, to make sure that we're, we're able to be a 21st century agency meeting the challenges of the moment. Uh, agree. Circumstances change, and these days they change very quickly. Uh, and so I think there's probably a way for us to um, maintain accountability for funds, maintain uh, programmatic earmarking, but perhaps allow for a little bit more flexibility uh, with regard to country and geography. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks, Ambassador, welcome. Thank you. So, Ambassador, you and I have had a good working relationship. We had a very good conversation in my office. We have worked together in particular concerning humanitarian crises and dissidents. Uh, I appreciated your willingness when serving as UN ambassador to speak out for Miriam Ibrahim, uh, who was wrongfully imprisoned in Sudan and, and sentenced to torture and death for the crime of being a Christian. And, and you showed courage speaking out for her. Um, as you know, I was very frustrated President Obama wouldn't speak out for her, but I was grateful that you did. Um, but I also had very significant disagreements with you during your time as UN ambassador. And, and 
Nowhere were those disagreements stronger than concerning Israel and concerning Iran. Concerning Israel, I think perhaps the most shameful moment of the Obama administration was after the election in November of 2016 and was the Security Council's passage of Resolution 2334, which I do not think it is coincidental that the Security Council passed it after the presidential election and not before. And that resolution was passed with, at best, the acquiescence of the United States and of you as UN ambassador, and at worst, the active encouragement of the Obama administration and you as UN ambassador. I believe Resolution 2334 is a pile of lies, that it is a resolution that is motivated by anti-Semitism, by hatred for Israel. Resolution 2334 declares much of modern-day Israel is illegitimate and illegally occupied territory. It declares the Jewish quarter in Jerusalem is illegitimate and illegally occupied territory. It declares the Wailing Wall is illegitimate and illegally occupied territory. There's a much-circulated picture of President Obama in a yarmulke paying respects at the Wailing Wall to see the Obama administration put through a resolution designed to attack Israel was quite dismaying. So I guess my first question is, do you agree with Resolution 2334? Uh, thank you, Senator. Uh, I had, there were two sort of guiding principles uh, that I relied upon as UN ambassador as it relates to Israel. The first was to combat bias and anti-Semitism and the unfair way that Israel uh, has been treated at the UN and is treated at the UN. And the second, uh, following President Obama's direction, of course, was to preserve space for a two-state solution. Uh, I, 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 I want to uh, make sure I have the chance to just describe a little bit what I did, and I'm disappointed we didn't get to talk about this in your office, uh, what I did in the first category, because I think uh, your, your question does not reflect the reality of, so, of so my four years at the U.N. With respect I, to Master Power, the, the, the time is limited. Right. Uh, and, and, and so if you could just answer the question I asked, do you agree with Resolution 2334? I, I recognize you may well have done other things that were positive concerning Israel. I'm focused on this action at the United Nations. I just would like to get on the record that under my leadership, we secured Yom Kippur as a U.N. holiday, we convened the first ever General Assembly condemning anti-Semitism in the same chamber as the Zionism as racism uh, resolution was passed decades before. And we integrated Israel in a way that had never been done before, chairing committees, uh, being able to actually be part of groups from which they had been traditionally excluded. I don't think there is a record that looks as substantial when it comes to integrating Israel. On the resolution itself, uh, it is a resolution in keeping with President Obama's desire to encourage the parties to avoid unilateral steps, including terrorism, incitement to violence, and the building of settlements. Those dimensions of the resolution, I think if you read my explanation of vote at the time, the problem with the resolution and the reason President Obama decided to abstain was by and large uh, the venue, because the UN has been so biased, because there are 18 so general let's, assembly Let's get to a little bit more granularity. Yeah. Do you believe the Jewish quarter in Jerusalem is illegitimate and illegally occupied territory? Um, I do not. So do you disagree with the substance of Resolution 2334? Because that's what it says. 
Senator, uh, President Obama's uh, desire was to encourage the parties to avoid unilateral steps. That is the essence of, of that resolution, and I think the reason that he made the judgment uh, to, to instruct me to abstain. So encouraging the party to, parties to avoid unilateral steps, Resolution 2334 was a unilateral step. Israel had no say in it. It was a step taken by the enemies of Israel to condemn Israel. The, uh, again, the, the desire uh, that animated uh, me in my time at the UN was to fight bias and to preserve space for a two-state solution. Okay, a, a, a final question. Can you please describe the role played by Iran and by the Houthis in particular in deepening the humanitarian crisis in Yemen and assess whether the Biden administration's move to relieve terrorism sanctions on the Houthis has played a role in, in that humanitarian crisis? The Houthi, I was, when I was at the United Nations, the Houthi overran a sovereign government uh, used military force uh, for territorial acquisition, have used food as a weapon of war. Uh, I mean, again, I'm on record uh, condemning Houthi actions and, and specifically, again, the use of humanitarian aid. I think the challenge is the vast majority of Yemenis live under Houthi uh, control uh, at the moment, unless and until there is a political settlement and so it's really important, given that that's the world's uh, largest humanitarian catastrophe right now, that we find a way to get food to those vulnerable people. But Thank the you Biden very much. Administration's lifting the terrorism sanctions. So the senator's work? time has expired, and uh, okay. I was just asking her to answer. I know I've, I've let more time than other colleagues. Okay, I'd still like her to ask the question. I'm sure. You, I'm sure you can submit it for the record, and you'll get a response. Okay, so you don't. No, I, I, I want to observe the time I have for everybody else. She could still. Senator Booker. I am really grateful. Uh, we're all juggling hearings today, and I, I appreciate uh, the yielding of my friend from Texas and uh, the considerations of our chairperson uh, on a tight day. I am very happy to uh, see uh, Ambassador Power. I've known her for years. She's a woman of extraordinary integrity, commitment, and uh, has lived a life of service to our nation uh, on many fronts uh, that no matter what your political bias is, uh, it's laudatory, uh, the kind of dedication she's had to the best interest of America and uh, issues of, of human rights and human decency. Um, I want to ask uh, Ambassador Power uh, really quickly about the around uh, the issue of preventing future pandemics. Uh, last week, uh, it was reported that wildlife farms that were encouraged by the communist Chinese government to breed exotic animals were most likely the source of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, uh, the senior senator from Texas and I, Senator Cornyn, uh, introduced a bill called the Preventing Future Pandemics Act, which authorizes funding to USAID to work on reducing demand for consumption of wildlife from wildlife markets. Uh, will you work with us uh, to reduce the global demand uh, for wildlife that could lead to another zoonotic disease outbreak? And, and will you work with us to invest in food systems and alternative sources of food protein to move food insecure communities away from the consumption of wildlife. Yes, Senator, and I, I just I appreciate the uh, the integrated approach uh, that that you bring uh, to this issue. The idea that environmental, agricultural, 
um, health, that these sectors can be separated, I think is, has been proven anachronistic and, and if confirmed, part of my challenge at USAID is to bring about that integration and make sure uh, that our experts are working together uh, across what have been silos uh, in, in, in the not so recent past. Thank you. Uh, Ambassador, I, I know uh, from a, a friendship with you spanning from years that um, you're, you have an incredible uh, and courageous empathy uh, for humanitarian crises around this planet. I know how seriously you take that. Um, we are in the midst right now uh, in, in 2021 with a record 235 million people uh, who are in need of humanitarian assistance and, and protection. That is an increase of 40% since 2020. I'm really uh, honored to be working with Senator Young. He and I co-chaired a task force at CSIS uh, to look at the humanitarian access, which has been increasingly uh, constrained as violent conflict has escalated. Uh, the NGO partners we worked with identified both international, in other words, the willful obstruction by governments, as we're seeing, uh, frankly, in Ethiopia, and bureaucratic obstruction of humanitarian access. And the humanitarian groups, we really argued uh, to Senator Young and I uh, that in the complicated environments like Yemen and Syria, Somalia, Afghanistan, Northeast Nigeria and elsewhere, compliance with some USAID policies uh, related to potential material support to terrorist groups has made it nearly impossible to operate. And so uh, in, in my final question to you and respectful of the time of other senators, uh, I just want to know, can you outline the steps that, that you're going to take to work um, internally at USAID and with colleagues at the State Department to try to streamline and improve the regulatory process itself uh, so that humanitarian NGOs are really on a sound legal footing when carrying out humanitarian assistance that's funded by the United States? And will you work with us uh, to find ways to ease some of the regulatory burdens on frontline humanitarian NGOs uh, to make sure they're on legal, sound legal footing and carrying out uh, humanitarian assistance uh, funded by the U.S. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. And my gratitude to our partners working in those difficult environments and my gratitude to USAID staff uh, who do the same uh, at, at great risk. Uh, I think part of the reason that you're seeing humanitarian access uh, denied uh, is a sense of impunity uh, on the part of various actors, and it does create uh, immense challenges uh, for uh, our partners on the ground. Um, with regard to to vetting and and uh, the, the 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 challenges of complying with regulations and certification, I think, Senator, that's something absolutely I would love to sit down with you and and talk through. I think we have to make sure uh, that our we're doing everything in our power to ensure that our assistance reaches our intended beneficiaries, uh, given the kinds of actors that inhabit these conflict areas. Um, at the same time, if there are efficiencies to be achieved, of course, we would strive uh, to achieve them. So, so we're absolutely uh, happy to sit down with you and, and, and talk that through, consistent, again, with following the law and, and the requirements that this body uh, has put forward. I look forward to that partnership. I yield, uh, but I would like to just say uh, I'm so grateful to the state of New Jersey for giving me the privilege of being a United States Senator. I will count it as one of the great honors of my experiences as a senator uh, to vote for your confirmation on the Senate floor. You're an extraordinary human being that will do not just the United States proud, but the world proud 
uh, with what I believe will be extraordinary efforts uh, to make this uh, planet more just for humanity. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Barrasso. Uh, Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations. Good to see you. The kids have grown up since you were last here. Cass is behind you. And as you said, he's... He hasn't grown up. No, no. (laughs) I'd like just, if I could, before I start on some other questions, just if you could please answer Senator Cruz's question about if the Biden administration lifted the, when they lifted the terrorism sanctions on the Houthis, if that made the humanitarian crisis worse. In lifting the designation, I, that's an empirical question. I, I don't have an answer to the question, and, and I hadn't heard the, the, the full question before, um, so I, I don't know the answer to that question. I want to move to energy development in, in Africa. You know, worldwide, 840 million people are living without electricity. Uh, 573 million live in, of these live in sub-Saharan Africa. Power Africa was launched to increase the number of people with access to power. Uh, energy development can lift people out of poverty, improve their education, health, well-being. In my multiple trips to Africa, what I see is humanitarian problems when they don't have electricity, when they don't have power, whether it's to, to charge a phone or to deliver a baby and use the suction apparatus at the time of the birth of the baby uh, with, uh, to can make the difference between life or death. So developing countries desperately need access to a steady supply, affordable, reliable electricity to support their economic growth as well. So, you know, people back home in Wyoming know firsthand the benefits of developing abundant energy resources. Uh, The solution to ending energy poverty uh, doesn't lie in limiting options, but I believe using all available options. I mean, you read about the most threatening environmental hazard to people. It's, It's cook smoke. It's indoor smoke because they're using dung and wood to cook indoors. The, so we have, I think we have to be diligent in promoting all the above energy strategy that helps alleviate energy poverty. So will you commit to helping developing countries use all energy resources, including coal and oil and natural gas, so they can get electricity? Um, Senator, I know that many of our partners um you know, are, are seeking to transition uh, in part because of uh, pollution. Um, I, I think Power Africa, and I, I'm grateful uh, from afar for the last four years for your leadership on Power Africa. I think it has been a, a, a tremendous boon to many communities, both in poverty alleviation uh, and in providing uh, energy. I gather uh, that more than 18 million new power connections for homes and businesses have been established through Power Africa, and that means first-time energy access for more than 88 million uh, people in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, you know, on the specifics of of what the energy sources are, if I could if I could get back to you, uh, I, I'd be grateful. Again, I know that there has been a shift over time, including in the last administration. Uh, toward uh, renewable sources, um, but I also know that the all of, all of the above approach has been one uh, that has been the, the the standard since the inception. Yeah, well, there have been issues about what loans would be made to which countries, and, and China's rushing in with, if the United States doesn't want to be active in providing opportunities for affordable energy, China is happy to become a partner with many countries that I think are, are ones that we would rather uh, those be working with us and uh, sometimes the purity of, uh, of uh, the climate alarmists, as I call them, uh, is harmful to the economic needs and the health needs of people in, in these areas, parts of the world. Uh, moving, moving ahead, D- due to coronavirus, countries all around the globe are struggling to support the health and safety of their citizens. We see that. You, you've seen it firsthand. There are limited resources to address incredible and growing needs that we just heard about 
from Senator Booker. Um, given the increasing needs for humanitarian assistance, uh, global health and food insecurity, I- I'm concerned that precious resources are going to be redirected uh, away from that in terms of focusing on international climate change. Uh, could, will climate change be your top priority as the administrator of USAID? Well, as you know, uh, climate-related events and the changing climate and the warmer climate is affecting USAID uh, returns on investments. Uh, you know, more droughts uh, have made an impact on our agricultural and, and food security programming. So I think what we'd be looking to do is within current programming, uh, for example, on food security, uh, to think about cr- climate resilience, uh, you know, when it comes to humanitarian emergency funding, you know, since there are more natural disasters happening statistically, as a general rule, each year, thinking about how to do disaster risk reduction so there's less damage, and so we we thus, um, uh, you know, need to provide less humanitarian emergency funding uh, because buildings were built uh, more securely in the first instance. So I think it's less. Uh, a a zero-sum trade-off and more about integration. Uh, Mr. Chairman, my time's expired. Thank you. Uh, Ambassador, uh, I'm going to just draw your attention to a few things. I'm going to submit it to the record. I'd like a substantive response to them instead of going through it here. But I want to draw your attention just a couple things. We have challenges in the hemisphere like Venezuela with Colombia. And uh, I'd like to hear your assessment on how AID can provide development assistance to countries like Colombia that are hosting refugees and doing a good neighbor and a hemispheric good neighbor. But I think we need to help countries like that that are in the midst of doing that. Uh, Secondly, I'd like to draw your attention to the challenges that the Armenian population of Nagorno-Karabakh continues to face in the light of last fall's attack by Azerbaijan. Uh, In the short term, USAID can help address food, water, health care, and COVID assistance need, particularly for displaced Armenians. Uh, But I'm concerned the U.S. hasn't done enough to date, so I would like to look forward to hearing from you on that. Um, I'd like to hear from you how the administration uh, seeks to address the interconnected security governance and climate-related crises that are feeding the humanitarian emergency in the Sahal. And then lastly, I would like to draw your attention to the U.S.-India relationship. Uh, We uh, introduced the prioritizing clean energy and climate cooperation with India to boost U.S.-India cooperation. I'd like to hear the role you envision USAID playing in boosting U.S.-India cooperation on clean energy. And lastly, last year's appropriation omnibus authorized the USAID administrator to establish the United States-India Gandhi King Development Foundation, which would attract public and private capital to fund grants to address development priorities in India. I'd like to hear your views on that foundation. So uh, we'll submit those for the record. If you give us a substantive response, uh, I would appreciate it. I want to salute uh, uh, Declan and Rhea, who have uh, done such an extraordinary job of listening to all these in-depth questions and had had patience through this whole period of time. Uh, As the hearing comes to a close today, I want to thank uh, Ambassador Power for her time and her thoughtful uh, testimony. It's my intention, working with the ranking member, to hold the markup for Ambassador Power as soon as possible after the recess. The record will remain open until Thursday, March 25th, 
I'd urge you to answer any questions that are submitted for the record so that you can be in a position to be considered at a business markup. With the thanks of the committee, this hearing is adjourned. Thank you.